So if you uh, happen to have your Bible with you, oh, get inertia is hard to overcome. Uh, open it up to John. That's inertia at work in a separate way. Here we go. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to take a look at the passage that Will just read to us. Um, and as you're finding your way there, I just have a real quick personal plea to you. I run a program called Blue Ridge Fellows. And we get a whole bunch of guys getting ready to come into town. And we always have a tradition of spending our first week together at the lake or a few days together at the lake. Um, but we don't have a lake house this year. So if you have a lake house or you have a friend with a lake house and you would let a bunch of godly recent college grads hang out there for a couple days after Labor Day, the doldrums. Nobody wants to be there after Labor Day. You can just board it up. But let us use it for a couple of days before you board it up. Um, I would love to talk to you. We really desperately need a place to, to have our opening retreat. We'd be grateful for your help. So we're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning. We're in a series on the I. Oh, I got to stay still, right? I forgot. We have cameras now. You're not allowed to move anymore, which is terrible. Um, we're going to be in a series on, we're, we're in the midst of a series looking at John's um, recording of Jesus's I am statements. Eight times throughout John's gospel, Jesus says something explicit about himself with the formula, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And individually, but especially in combination, these things reveal, these statements reveal um, Jesus's profound sense of himself. Uh, if I told you that I am the bread of life, and I went on to say that I am the light of the world, not that I have the light of the world, not that I know where you can find the bread of life, but it's me. Eventually, you would need to stop coming to church here, right? Because the grandiose of that, grandiosity of that would just be so completely extreme. If I were to say to you, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. You should leave at that moment, okay, and not come back. But Jesus said all of those things and more. He is claiming a position in the world so great, so exalted, that the conclusion becomes inescapable. Jesus thought that he was God Almighty. And uh, it's really up to us to say, is it true? Could it be that God has become a human being? The I am statement that we're going to look at this morning is obviously in John chapter 10. There's actually two statements in John 10, and we're just going to look at the first. John 10 is unique um, because it's really the only place, it's the closest place in John's gospel that Jesus ever gets to telling a parable. All the parables that you know, all of them are found in what we call the synoptic gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't care which one, the prodigal son, the weeds and the wheat, the rich man and Lazarus, the lost coin, name a parable. It's in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, um, and never in John. But this is the closest that Jesus ever comes to telling a story. I'm going to read you just the, the story portion of that, although Will has already given it to us. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Okay, first thing I want you to notice is the characters in this semi-story, okay? Who are the characters here? Just shout them out real quick or mumble them out, you know, whatever. But who are the characters? Sheep. The, rob, the thief robber sheep, 
the doorkeeper. Anybody else we're missing? The shepherd. I don't know if we said the shepherd, right? So here's the story with all the, all the characters highlighted. Thief, robber, shepherd, gatekeeper, sheep. The stranger might be the thief and the robber, not entirely clear. So Jesus tells a story, and he wants them to understand what he's saying. He wants them to grasp what he's saying. And in particular, he wants them to get what he's saying about himself. So I think it's natural to look at this and be like, okay, Jesus, who are you? Which character in this story is you? And who do you think he is? See, the sheep, the shepherd, the thief, the robber, the gatekeeper, the stranger. Naturally, you're going to think that he's the shepherd. That's a pretty good answer. And Will is going to look at that, wherever Will is, next week. But the crazy thing is that he's a character in this story that none of us probably even thought was a character at all. Look at, look at what he says in verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he goes on and he makes it more plain. Verse, t- verse 7. So Jesus again meaning they should have got it the first time. We should have got it the first time. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It's like, what? Good grief, Jesus. You're the door? Like that wasn't even on our list, right? And he, and he continues, verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and go out and find pasture. At which point, I think we have to rethink the story entirely. Like, okay, what do you mean that you're the door? Okay, I was thinking shepherd. Will's going to cover that. But Jesus says he's the door, so he's the door, okay? Now, if we're going to get our head around this and understand what what he means, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. And We're trying to train ourselves. Whenever we find something strange in the Bible, don't skip it. Right? We have this horrible tendency to be like, I don't know what that's about, and turn the page. Whenever that happens, don't turn the page. Slow the thing down and ask yourself, okay, on what basis does he claim to be a door? What does that mean? And I think if we're going to understand that, then we need to actually do a little bit of a quick survey of the motif of doors or gates in the Bible. There's actually a theme of doors that I think Jesus is tapping into. It's probably a theme that may not be super familiar to us. So we're going to do a quick survey. I want to show you three places that this motif of gates and doors shows up. We're going to look at Psalm 24, Psalm 118, and then kind of a smash up of Exodus 26 and and Hebrews 10. We're going to be mostly in Hebrews 10. We'll hit each one quickly, which kills me because I would love to develop this, but the clock is ticking. All right, so we got to take a look at these. So go back to Psalm 24. That is the, the Psalm that we read, coincidentally. It's so convenient when it works out that way. Um, it's a messianic psalm, and it asks the all-important question in verse 3. The question of Psalm 24 is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who? Who can stand in his holy place? Who is it, you guys, that is worthy to stand in his presence? Is there anybody qualified to climb this hill? And the answer comes, it says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty bad news for me. Do you have clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? There is one, but there is only one who is able to ascend the hill. Psalm 24 is about the Messiah, and it ends with these gates at the top of this hill wide open. Here's what it says, verse verse 9. It says, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. In Psalm 24, the gate has opened, the path has opened. And the point is that there is someone, there's one person who is worthy enough to climb the hill and to open the gate that no one else can open. So there is access, doors give access, and there's access through this door, but only to someone who is supremely worthy. After we uh, celebrate communion today, Eric and the band are going to sing a song that is in fact a reflection of Psalm 24. You hear the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It's an Andrew Peterson song, I love it, it's great. Um, And so when, when we get to that, climb the hill, who can open the gate? Okay, that's Psalm 24. Psalm 118 might be a little bit more familiar to you guys. Psalm 118 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament, um, second after Psalm 110, and it gets quoted all the time. Psalm 118 shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Hebrews, 2 Peter. You would recognize it probably, there's a couple lines in there that you might recognize. It's maybe best known as the source of the Palm Sunday cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. It also contains the line, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. That's all Psalm 118. Um, And in that same stanza about the rejected stone that is exalted to become the capstone, it says this. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. So just like in Psalm 24, there's this desire for access up a hill, through a gate. But in Psalm 118, what's really interesting, what's different, is that it's not just his worthiness and the sense of his moral excellence that enables him to open. But this entire psalm, if you read through it, Psalm 118, as is appropriate as we begin the Passion Week on Palm Sunday, the whole psalm is about suffering. And it's about a particular sufferer and his right to demand that the gate be opened. And the basis of that demand is not just his moral excellence, but it is the fact of his rejection and his exaltation. The stone who suffers rejection and yet is exalted to the highest place. He is the one who demands that the door be opened. It would seem if we follow this theme through that what the Bible is saying about doors and gates is that they can be very difficult to open. But they can be opened by a worthy man and sometimes only by a worthy man who suffers, is rejected, but is ultimately exalted. So this is kind of the, the biblical theme of gates. There's a door that gives ask, access to something of value but can only be opened by someone worthy and in particular by a worthy person who suffers. Um, I want to try to illustrate this for you. Are there any Marvel fans here? People, anybody follow the Marvel films? Yeah, man. All right, so here's the thing. Throughout the, the Marvel is an incredibly complex set of stories, and like all great stories, they're built on gospel themes. Every story that you love has to borrow itself, borrow its beauty from the gospel. And in the Marvel universe, there's one character who carries the theme of worthiness. Is he Worthy. Anybody know who that is? Thor. It is. Good job. I was wondering if that would be a dead question. Thor. Thor is the son of God. He is the great son of the great God Odin. And he wields his hammer because he is worthy. And he demonstrates that worthiness when he lays down his life and dies so that others can live 
and is subsequently raised from the dead in power. We're going to watch just a quick clip from, I don't know, Ragnarok. I don't know which one of these is. One of the Thor movies in the, uh, in the Marvel Universe. And I want you to watch this. I think this story might, you might recognize some of the themes of this. So let's go ahead and we can, are we able to darken it all and then show this? It'd be great. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Righteous son of God who dies in a rescue, proving his worthiness and rising from the dead in power. There is one great story from which all stories draw their beauty. Worthiness is the theme here. Now there's one more piece. Because you may have noticed that Jesus didn't say he's the door opener, but he's the door itself. 
And the third of our three doors is in Exodus 26. So you don't need to turn there. It gets a little bit complicated. We don't have time to unpack it all. But essentially what Exodus 26 is doing is it's giving us the blueprints for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this great big elaborate tent. It's kind of like a temporary movable temple. It's the place where the Israelites met with God. It's where they offered sacrifice to him. It's where he literally dwelt, where where he was with them. And he's very particular about the instructions of it. What you need to know about this temple is that there were different chambers, different levels of depth. And the deepest one was called the most holy place. And nobody could go through the door into the most holy place, except only once a year and only when the high priest would go in with a bloody sacrifice. He had to be made worthy to go through the door because he wasn't worthy. So somebody had to die. They would take a sheep and they would slit its throat and he would enter through this gateway, through this final curtain into the final place with the blood of the sufferer who had died. Well, get this, in Hebrews 10, which I would like you to turn to, we learn that not only can that door be opened by a worthy person and by a worthy person who suffers, but the worthy sufferer himself became a new door. Take a look at verse 19. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Okay, so pause right there. Nobody in human history ever had confidence to enter the most holy place. The whole point is that you cannot enter the most holy place. You cannot climb the hill. You are not worthy. Those gates will not open for you. Something here has changed. Something radical has changed. And we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Ah, and there it is. That's the thing that has changed. Check it out, verse 20. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. His body, he has in his flesh, in his torn, rent body, has become a new door through which you are actually able to enter. And therefore, the the admonition is, let us draw near to God. We now, you now, have confidence to enter the most holy place that you never had. And it's because there's a new way, there's a new path, there's a new gate, there's a new door. And it is the very body of Jesus You guys, Jesus is the worthy person who ascends the hill and opens the gate. And he is, Jesus is the rejected stone whose suffering entitles him to demand that the way be exalted. He is the capstone and he can do whatever he wants, including admit you to the forbidden places. He is himself the new and living way that has been opened for us through the curtain. And I think that that, that chain of thoughts through Psalm 24 and Psalm 118 and Exodus 26, culminating in Hebrews 10, is why Jesus says, and I quote, I am the door. If anyone, anyone, anyone who's not in fact worthy, but anyone at all enters by me, he will be saved And we'll go in and out and find pasture. You guys, the world is full of doorways. 
everybody is peddling our doorway. Come this way. Come right in. This is the path that will work. But they're all fake. They all lie. There are lying doorways everywhere. But there is simply one that works. Jesus is not one of the doors. He's the door. And life is found in him. And if you have been duped by fake doors and have come to realize that they're dead ends, or, or if you've always been afraid even to knock because you have some sense of your own unworthiness, then be of good cheer. For a way has been opened. He is the door. And you are invited, just as you are, to come through, not on the basis of your worthiness or moral perfection, not on the basis of your suffering, but on the basis of his. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you because you are the door. Rescue us from all these lying paths. Give us courage to stand up and to come forward and to confidently enter into this place that we have no right to be. We exalt you. We praise you. We love you.